Bibles now, if you would, please, and if you'll open them to the Old Testament book of the prophet Isaiah. Tonight, I actually have two texts that I'd like to use for our, the sermon tonight. And uh, these are Old Testament passages. And as most of you know, I love to look at the Old Testament and especially the things that we find in there concerning the prophecies of Christ. And when we look into the Old Testament, we should understand that our purpose is always to reveal Christ because he's the theme of every single book of the Bible. Beginning in Genesis and going all the way through Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ is the entire theme of the Bible. If you remember that uh, the first message that I preached in the series in Revelation, I made a comparison between Genesis and Revelation and told you how that the themes of those two books are very much alike. Many gospel writers have said, uh, those who have made commentary on Scripture, that the Bible contains a scarlet thread that runs throughout the entire book. It runs from the front to the back. And that scarlet thread is really the story of redemption. It's the revelation of how God would redeem mankind from our sins. And the Old Testament begins to weave that thread in Genesis chapter 3.15, which is a text called the Proto-Evangelium. And that means a prototype of the gospel, or the first preaching of the gospel. And we find in that text a promise that the Savior would come and he would ultimately triumph over evil. Well, the opposition to the redemption of God and God's plan for Christ to come into the world is also revealed in that text. And there it tells us that forever there would be enmity between the seed of the woman and Satan. And of course, the seed of the woman is Jesus Christ. And every step of the way throughout human history, it's been Satan's desire to overthrow God's plan and God's purpose that a Savior would come. But nevertheless, God continued to make that promise. And throughout the Scripture, we find that he tells us again and again that Jesus is coming. And there isn't a text that could declare it any more plainly from the Old Testament than these that we're going to read tonight. This first text is quoted by Matthew in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1. And as we've been studying Matthew's Gospel on Sunday morning, we've learned that Matthew, more than any other Gospel writer, goes back into the Old Testament and talks about those prophecies concerning Christ. So he writes about Old Testament things more than any of the other evangelists. He gives us the human and the divine genealogies of Christ, and he tells us that he truly is the Messiah King. Now, this evening, I'd like to talk to you about Isaiah's prophecy, and the subject of the message tonight is Heaven's Child. I'd like you to stand with me, please, as we look in Isaiah chapter 7. The first text that I want to look at is in the 14th verse of Isaiah 7. And there it says, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And you remember from our Sunday morning series that that word Emmanuel, Emmanuel, that Matthew tells us what that means. He says that means God with us. Now, if you'll turn over then to the ninth chapter, and we'll look at verses 6 and 7. And there Isaiah writes, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the prince of peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with justice, with uh, judgment and with justice 
from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Heavenly Father, we thank you for such a wonderful text that we find in the Old Testament, a great prophecy concerning Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that you might open up this text before us tonight, that we might understand better who Jesus is and what he came to do as he was born in Bethlehem. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Isaiah was inspired by God to write these words. He says, unto us a son is given. Now I want to talk about this first tonight. Number one is the greatness of God's gift. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. There are many texts that we find in the Bible that point to the most significant and important characteristic of Jesus Christ. That characteristic that's so important to us is that Jesus has a a, a dual nature. He is both human and he is divine. And so this child that was born in Bethlehem, the one that God sent from heaven, is unlike any other child before him because he is a child who is both man and God. In the book of Romans, we find that Paul wrote about the deity and the humanity of Christ and combined them into one passage of Scripture. And he writes in Romans chapter 1, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. And we can take these two texts that we've just read in Isaiah and then this text that we read here in the book of Romans and we can compare those and we see that the phrase that Isaiah gave us for unto us a child is born that corresponds to Paul's statement in Romans that he is of the seed of David according to the flesh. And then the second phrase that Isaiah used and unto us a son is given that compares to Paul's statement declared to be the son of God with power. Now, there are many reasons why that the gift that God gave us was so great, but I want to confine this discussion tonight and in this first point to two particular areas. First of all, this gift that God gave us is great because it is encouraging. It's a very encouraging gift because in this gift, God reveals himself. And I'm encouraged because I learn here that God is not just a God who lives somewhere out there in the wild blue yonder. He's not a God who's wandering somewhere around on the back 40 of the universe. But God is a God who sees me. God is a God who knows about me. He's interested in me. And he is so interested that he was willing to put his personal touch right into my very life. I find no encouragement at all in a belief that God is in the trees. And I don't feel very encouraged to find out that, as some say, that God is in the birds or that God is in the grass. There's no encouragement to me to think that God is in the universe or God is simply the universe. But when I think about this, that God gave a gift that revealed his personal interest in me, and God gave me a gift because he wanted to know that he's near me, that he sympathizes with every fear, with every tear, with every heartache that I experience, that is encouraging to me. What a great gift that God gives. God gave. And God gave us a gift that says that he's interested in a relationship with me. And did you know that's the very thing that distinguished Jehovah God, our God, from the other gods that we find written about in the Bible? I mean, those gods are the Canaanites, the gods of the Egyptians, the gods of the Babylonians, of the Greeks and the Romans. All of them had, a God, had gods that were, were totally impersonal to them. They didn't know anything about a personal relationship with their God. They had unhappy gods. 
And so what they had to do is they had to appease those gods. And their gods required the giving of sacrifices in order to make satisfaction. So there was no such thing as having a personal relationship with those gods. But our God is much different from that because rather than requiring a sacrifice from us, God gave his own sacrifice. In fact, he gave us a sacrifice that would enable us to come into his presence. And so he gave us a gift that said, I want to share in your sorrows. I want to take your pain and your disappointments. And he says, I want to fix that problem that we both have, that you can't come into my presence because of sin. And he says, I'm going to fix that for you because I'm going to give you a gift. Now, that's encouraging to me because I know just how unworthy that I am. There's no way that I can satisfy God. There's no sacrifice that I would ever be able to make that could bridge that gap between me and God. But if God comes to me with this gift, he gives me a gift that is a package of humanity so that I can relate to him, and that's wrapped up in the power of deity so that I can be righteous with him, then I'm encouraged. Because there I find hope in Christ where there was no hope before. And then this is also a great gift because it brings rejoicing. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. In late October of this year, my, my life and my wife's life took a very dramatic detour. And that's when Jared and Lauren moved from Kentucky to come here to California. And in that move that they made, there was this little bundle that made things very much different for us. Now, this was a package that they brought with them that weighed, maybe it weighs about 12 or 15 pounds, I'm not sure, but it sure does make a difference in our lives. Now, if you ask me, do I like that difference? Well, I would tell you that I wouldn't trade anything in the world for it. I mean, I'm so happy to have it. Now, here is when they brought that little baby into our lives, that was delightful to us. And it's so great to be a grandparent. And those of you that are, you... You know the blessing of it because you get all of, the, all of the fun without any of the responsibility. And so, you know, when things go wrong and, and that child starts to become a problem, all you have to do is just hand him off to somebody else and let them take care of it. Well, the birth of a child is a time of rejoicing. You ever thought about this, that when you go to the hospital, that every floor on a hospital is a, is a floor of depression? There's sadness there, there's distress, and there's pain on all of these floors. But it's different when you go to the floor where the babies are born. And that's because you find parents and grandparents and relatives and friends all pressing their nose up against a glass to get a look at that little bitty baby that's born. A baby brings rejoicing into a household. And this is what was said about Jesus. The angels came and they talked to the shepherds that were on that hillside and they said, Fear not. Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. So there's reason to rejoice. And the angels, even today, I think, are telling us in the Christmas season that there ought to be joy in our lives. There's great joy as people all over the world at this time of the year receive gifts and they give gifts and they do that as a remembrance of God's gift that he gave to the world. And then also we can say about a child is born, there are words of great rejoicing, uh, and these words that a son is given, because that word given speaks of that wonderful gift. And, and there's no delight like knowing that God has given that gift, and it's a gift that is so precious that it brings salvation to the very worst of the worst. The guilty of the guiltiest receive a benefit from this gift. 
There's grace in that gift because the gift tells us that there's no work for us to do. Salvation is not based upon any work that we do. It's totally, completely based upon what God has done for us. He supplies the gift. And then a son is given as words of rejoicing because there's wisdom in God's gift. And that's because God gave us the exact gift that we needed. You ever struggle trying to buy a gift for someone and you just don't know what to buy them? My wife complains about it all the time. She says, I don't like to go shopping for you because you have everything that you need. Well, God gave us the perfect gift because it was exactly what we needed. We didn't have anything. We don't have anything to offer him. Mankind has nothing, and so God gave us a gift that's perfect for us. Do you remember what Jesus said to that church in Revelation we talked about last week, the the sickening church, the church at Laodicea? He said, Thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Without Jesus, we don't have anything to offer But God has everything that man needs. And so we find in him a gift that is more useful, it's more valuable, it's more fitting than any gift that could ever be given. So rejoice in this, that in his wisdom, God gave you his greatest gift. And then we also rejoice and a son is given because this is a gift that's given to us in love. There ever been somebody on your list that you would call the give because they gave gift I mean, the person that you wouldn't normally give a gift to, but because they bought you a gift, you feel like you're obligated to go out and buy them a gift. All of us have that kind of person on our list, and so uh, it's the motivation for giving to that person. It's not really love. Matter of fact, we might not even like them very well at all because we weren't going to buy them a gift. But we've got this obligation that we feel because they gave us a gift. Well, there are some people who think that God is obligated to give to them. They think, well, God owes this to me. I'm deserving of this, and so God must give me this gift. Well, the very last thing that I ever want God to do is to give me what I deserve. I don't want what I deserve. God never gives because we give. We don't have anything to offer him, and a person who has nothing to offer is not very good at gift giving. And so God has, has, given us, has not given us anything because we gave to him. We don't have anything to offer God's motivation for giving this this gift arises from his own nature. It's his character. The Bible says that God is love. And when God gave to us, he didn't hold back his very best. He gave the most valuable possession. In fact, you remember, God said about Jesus, he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So he didn't give us a gift to get something back. This was an act of God's supreme love. It's a love that knows no limits, and it comes from grace that's beyond measure. So there's great rejoicing in a son is given. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And that means encouragement and rejoicing for all of mankind because that is God's greatest gift. Now, in Isaiah's prophecy, we also see the greatness of God's glory. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. The Apostle John wrote in John 1, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, 
And we beheld the glory, his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus truly is the glory of the Father because, as the Scripture says there, he's full of grace and truth. God's glory is expressed in Christ in the names that are given to him. And we find five different names that are given to him in Isaiah chapter 9, verse number 6. Now, let's take just a moment to look at those names that he's called there. First of all, he's called, or his name is Wonderful. Now, some people believe that wonderful is simply an adjective for the next part of that, counselor. And so they say that Jesus is the wonderful counselor. I believe that the King James translators had this right when they put a comma between those two words, wonderful and counselor. And what they did was to separate out this word wonderful as a separate name that's given to Christ. Now, we find an interesting scripture in Judges chapter 13 that points out this particular distinction. In the book of Judges... Uh, Samuel's parents were visited by a pre-incarnate manifestation of the Son of God. Many of you may remember that's what we call a theophany, or some people call that a Christophany. And that's when we have an appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament before his actual birth in Bethlehem. Well, in Judges chapter 13, verse number 18, it says, And the angel of the Lord said unto him, the angel speaking to Samuel's father, And the angel of the Lord said unto him, Why askest thou after my name, seeing it is secret? Now, the angel of the Lord there refers to Jesus, because here the angel, the word angel simply means messenger. And so he says, Why do you ask after my name, seeing it is secret? And secret is the very same word that's translated as wonderful in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. And so... The question then becomes, why do you ask after my name, seeing it is wonderful? Now, that's a great name for Jesus. If you know Jesus, you know that he's wonderful. Now, the question I think we would have is, why is there so much talk about Jesus? Here we are 2,000 years later, and we're talking about a person who lived his entire life within the confines of a very small country. He never traveled outside of that country. Um... He lived and he died in that place in relative obscurity. And actually, he came to a people and lived among a people, was born among a people that was hated by the entire world and is a reproach to humanity. People today still hate the Jewish people. And so we'd ask a question, why does anybody take notice of Jesus? I'll make the answer very simple for you. If he lives in your heart, you know why. Because he's wonderful. I mean, to think that Jesus loved me so much that he would go to the cross to save me from my sins. All I can say about that, he is wonderful. Then there's a second name, or the second name that's given to him. His name is Counselor. Last Sunday was the anniversary Sunday of the time that I became pastor of Berean. I've been pastoring the church here now for six years, and one of the things that I've learned during that six years of time is is the value of good counsel. Pastoring a church is a tremendous responsibility. And the final decisions for all the ministry that goes on in Berean Baptist Church falls on me. I mean, in the end, it all comes down to me. Harry Truman had a little sign that he put on his desk that said, the buck stops here, and that's exactly the way it is for a pastor of an independent Baptist church. The buck stops here. Our church government places much confidence and much authority in the office of the pastor. Now, I understand 
that I have the final authority in the church under the headship of Christ. But I also understand this, I have the authority not to exercise all of my authority. And so what I do is I depend on the good counsel of other people. And I'm so thankful that the Lord has given us deacons that we can depend on. And I listen to them. I listen to what they have to say. We have meetings. And rarely, if ever, do I override the counsel of our deacons. Proverbs says this. It says, where no counsel is, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. But as good as the counsel of men may be, sometimes the counsel of men fails. That's what happened to Job. He was surrounded by some very smart men, some brilliant men. But what they gave, when they gave Job counsel, it wasn't good counsel. And ultimately, their counsel failed. Well, whenever you go to Jesus for counsel, you never get a wrong answer. Proverbs says also, There are many devices in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the counsel of the Lord, that shall stand. I love W.A. Criswell's comment on this verse. He said, God's plans or counsel always succeed because he has the necessary power to bring them about and because they're right. Man's plans are many and uncertain. God's counsel is characterized by unity of purpose and immutability of design. And this is what Jesus came to do. He came to carry out God's immutable plan. And so whenever you go to Christ for counsel, you always get the right advice because what he does is he reveals the will of the Father to you. Now, you may come to me for counsel, and I'm happy to sit down with you and give you the best counsel that I can, but I will not fail to tell you before you leave my office that you need to go to God. You need to pray for him and seek his counsel because he'll always give you the right advice. You know, there's a very peculiar phenomenon that goes on in America today. It used to be that if you went to a psychiatrist or you went to a psychologist that you'd want to keep that information very quiet. It'd be very private. You wouldn't tell anybody that you did that. But today, you know, people start conversations out that way. What does your therapist say about this? Or who is your therapist? Now, Brother Gary, where he's in here somewhere, Brother Gary notwithstanding, if someone were to come to you and say to you, who is your therapist? And you said, Jesus. Stand back and watch what their reaction will be. Do you have a therapist? Well, yes, I do. His name is Jesus. He gives me the best advice. Well, Jesus gives counsel, but he never asks for counsel. Here's what Paul wrote. He said in Romans, For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor? Did you ever read in the scriptures where Jesus called a meeting of the disciples, and he said, What do I do now? What do you think I ought to do now? He never asked the disciples for any advice. When they had the Last Supper, that wasn't a meeting for advice and counsel. Jesus already knows what to do. He has all the right answers. He is the true counselor. He has the correct answer for every single problem in your life. So his name is wonderful, and it's counselor. Now, the third name that's given here, his name is Mighty God. You know, I don't know of any Christian denomination who does not teach and believe that Isaiah chapter 9 is actually a prophecy about Jesus. But there are some people who are, who are uh, say that they're Christians, but they won't admit this, that Jesus is mighty God. Now, the scriptures do not say he is a mighty God, and neither does it say that he has powers like a mighty God. It says simply he is mighty God. And what that is, is an affirmation of his deity. He's God in the flesh. Some are very confused about that because 
We also find in Scripture that he's called the Son of God. He's called the only begotten of the Father. And so they try to change that around, and they think that begotten means that he's not the eternal Son, that somehow uh, Jesus was not preexistent as God. Somehow he's a secondary God, or he has lesser, uh, lesser powers. He's a lesser divine being. Well, actually, Isaiah squelches all of that confusion with the next name that he calls him. He says, his name is Everlasting Father. That's a prophecy given 700 years before Christ came. And it says to us without question that God the Father and God the Son are co-eternal and co-equal. And that's because of Jesus' very own statement that we find in the New Testament. He says, I and my Father are one. Jesus said nothing about himself that was not perfectly consistent with every word that's written about him in the Old Testament. Now, some of you may wonder, uh, why do I continually emphasize this over and over? In the past few weeks, we've talked about this many, many times. Our study of 1 Corinthians, as we were dealing with the issue of the resurrection, we talked about this. Our study in the book of Philippians, when we speak about the kenosis of Christ in chapter 2. Our study in the book of Revelation, where we've been speaking about Jesus being the Alpha and Omega. All of those scriptures emphasize this very point. Everywhere that you turn in the Scripture, there's this constant affirmation of this point because the Bible wants us to make absolutely no mistake about who Jesus is. We cannot say that he's anything less than God. He is the eternal God. Now, if you don't understand that, if you don't, if you don't understand who Jesus is, you can't be saved. Now, most of my life, I spent in the Bible Belt. And... Uh, I rarely ran across anyone who didn't agree on this point about the deity of Christ. Just about everyone that I've met in in those days had been taught about the doctrine of the Trinity. But I came here to California, and I found out that there are many people who are very confused about this. They don't understand who Jesus is, and there's a big question in their minds about whether Jesus is really God, and is there such a thing as the Trinity? Does that really exist? Well, you have to know who Jesus is. Your salvation is dependent upon who Jesus is. Now, how many times have I told you Christianity is not a religion? Christianity is a person. His name is Jesus Christ. And so I don't believe that you can be a Christian unless you affirm the full deity and the full humanity of Jesus. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And this son is the everlasting father. Now, that sounds like a paradoxical statement. It sounds very confusing to us. And that's why I say that you need to go to Jesus, and you could not believe it unless you hear him say it for himself. Those are his own words. He is the mighty God. He is the everlasting Father. So God's glory, the full manifestation of God, is the revelation of the living Word of God incarnate. And then finally... In this particular area, uh, Isaiah prophesies another name that's given to the child. Another glorious name for him is that his name is the Prince of Peace. And I suppose that that name is just as paradoxical as the name that's given before it. When Jesus was born, his parents took him into the temple for dedication. And there was a man who entered into that temple on the very same day. And he'd been told by the Holy Spirit that he would not die until he had seen the Messiah. Until he had actually had the Messiah of the world, the Savior of the world revealed to him, he would not die. Now bear in mind, that was a prophecy, 
you know, Christ's coming had been prophesied for 4,000 years before that. And so now this man is told, 4,000 years of human history has passed, but you, you're not going to die until you see this particular person, until you see the Messiah. Now, I suppose that if you and I were given that information, the very last thing that we would do is go into the temple. We wouldn't go there because this could be the very day that the Messiah is revealed. And that means that I'm going to die once I find out who the Messiah is. So we'd stay away from the temple. But I don't think that Simeon, who was given this word, that he thought about that at all. I think that he expectantly went to that temple often. And he was constantly thinking, today may be the day that I'll understand, I'll see who the Messiah is. And then he knew when that happened, he would depart to be with the Lord. But the point I want to make about this is the prophecy that Simeon made concerning Jesus. Now, this is in Luke's record. And Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thine own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Fall and rising of many, a sword shall pierce through thine own soul. That doesn't sound like peace, does it? doesn't sound like peace at all. And if you follow Christianity down through the ages, you'll find that Jesus is never associated with peace. His people were persecuted. Those who follow him have always been persecuted. And even those who claim to be his followers became persecutors themselves. During the Middle Ages, there were military campaigns that were made by the Crusaders. And they went to Israel and to other parts of the world. And they went there with the purpose of beating back Muslim opposition to Christianity. But in the process, they also fought against Jews. And they fought against Greek and Orthodox Catholics. And they fought against our Baptist forefathers. Brother Dalton, I'm not sure why we use the name Crusaders for our basketball team. But they fought, they fought against us. And in fact, they fought against anyone who stood in the way of Roman Catholicism. And did you know that in return for their service, for killing all of these different people who stood up against them, that the popes granted them forgiveness from their sins? In Israel, we visited one of their fortresses called Belvoir. It's located, we had a picture up here, it's located high up on a mountain here that overlooks the Issachar Plateau. That was built in the 12th century. This other picture is the uh, picture of the entrance into it. But the crusaders were known for anything but peace. They, they slaughtered people without mercy. And you go to Israel today and you find out that those crusaders are still held in contempt by the Jewish people. They still remember what happened to them because of them. So the question is, how could we ever say that Jesus is a prince of peace? How could you ever believe that? There is no peace associated with him. And in fact, the prophecy that was given to Simeon was a prediction against the Jews for their rejection of the Messiah. I mean, right there, that temple that they were standing in, because of Jesus and the rejection of Christ, that temple was torn down. It was destroyed. And in addition to that, the walls of Jerusalem were torn down. How can you say that Jesus is the Prince of Peace? Well, actually, we find the answer to this in the seventh verse of chapter 9. It says, "...of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end." upon the throne of David, upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now, what does Isaiah's prophecy reveal? Well, it revealed the gift of the child. It reveals the glory of Christ. And now, finally, it also reveals the government of the king. 
How does Jesus bring peace? Well, we could talk about peace as we think about the calmness and the quietness that Jesus can bring to our soul. We can speak about how Jesus has removed the enmity that we have against God, and thereby he reconciles us to God, and so we have peace with God. We can talk about how Jesus' death on the cross appeased God's wrath by Jesus becoming a propitiating and justifying sacrifice for us. All of that brings peace. But the peace that's spoken of here is mainly governmental peace. And that is that Christ will establish a kingdom where peace is perpetuated. And his kingdom will be unlike any other kingdom that's before it because here is a kingdom that's not kept by war and bloodshed. All other kingdoms of the world are kept that way. The peace is kept by war and bloodshed. Now, that was the very mistake that the popes made and the crusaders made. What they tried to do was to establish Christ's kingdom on earth without Christ. And so they came and they desired to rule and reign in his place. And even today, the pope calls himself the vicar of Christ. And that means that he stands in the place of Christ. Well, when Christ comes to establish his peace... He doesn't need anyone to stand in his place because he will stand in his place. He'll come and he'll rule here. He's the mighty sovereign over the entire universe and he's going to come and sit on his throne. Now we call that the throne of David. But David was only keeping the throne warm because he was waiting for the time that the king of kings and the king of the everlasting kingdom would actually sit upon that throne. In the book of Revelation, it says, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now, what is the character of this kingdom? If you still have your Bibles open, I want you to turn over just a few pages to Isaiah chapter 11, and here we find another prophecy. Now, while you're turning to Isaiah chapter 11, I'm going to read another prophecy that's in chapter 2. So you look at chapter 11, and I'll read Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4. And he shall judge among the nations, and shall rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Now look at what you have there in Isaiah chapter 11, verse number 5. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear shall feed, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And the sucking child shall play on the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters that cover the sea. So the character of Christ's kingdom is that his government will be a government of peace. And we're talking here about a complete peace because not only is there peace among mankind, but there's also peace in the animal kingdom. There'll be perfect peace even in the animal kingdom. Most of you probably remember that last year on Christmas Day, there was a group of young men that went down to the San Francisco Zoo and they were taunting one of the tigers there. And that tiger leaped a 12-foot enclosure and mauled a 17-year-old boy to death. Even uh, Siegfried and Roy, who are called the masters of the impossible, among a few other names that I could think to call them, but um, 
they found out that it's impossible to undo what sin did in the animal kingdom. And so I would not advise you to climb into a cage with any wild animal. In fact, if you come over to my house and, and uh, you see Lauren's so-called domesticated house cat, I would not advise you to fall asleep on the couch with that cat around. You just don't know what's going to happen. There is no peace in the animal kingdom, and there is no lasting peace among men until Jesus comes to establish this eternal world government, this eternal kingdom, everlasting kingdom that he's going, going to settle. Now, the new president that we have, he may decide that he's going to negotiate with terrorists if he likes, but there's never going to be any peace among men until Jesus establishes his throne. So the character of Christ's kingdom is one of complete authority where all men live in peace until such a time as God decides to remove his hand and he allows Satan to come back and then to try to threaten that peace. And man will start to act according to the sinfulness of his heart again. But what Jesus will do before they ever have a chance to rise up against him, he'll squelch that entire rebellion and destroy them before it starts. And then God destroys the earth with fire. He brings in the new heaven and the new earth. And then Christ's kingdom becomes an everlasting kingdom. And it's the very last government that this world will ever know. At Christmas time every year, choirs all over the world sing Frederick Handel's great oratorio, The Messiah. Now really, if you didn't know, The Messiah has much more to say or much more to do with Christ's second advent than it does his first advent. And that's shown to us by Handel's greatest part of that, of that oratorio called, called uh, the Hallelujah Chorus. Now, most of you have heard that. In, in the Hallelujah Chorus, Handel quotes, first of all, from Revelation 19, verse 6. He says, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Then he quotes from Revelation 11:15. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And then he ends that with Revelation 19, verse 16, King of kings and Lord of lords. And that's the government of Christ. He's King of kings and Lord of lords. So we have this scarlet thread of redemption that runs all the way throughout the Bible. It goes from cover to cover. It begins in Genesis. It runs all the way to the book of Revelation. It begins... It brings in the promise of the first advent, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given... And then it ends in the everlasting kingdom of our Lord's Christ. Now, here, here is the last thought for this particular Christmas message. The first advent was to establish the kingdom in our heart. The second advent will be to establish the kingdom of heaven. In that first advent, Jesus came into the world. He was meek and he was lowly. And he came that first time to die for our sins. And what he did was to establish the kingdom in our heart. By our faith in him, that kingdom is established. But in the second advent, Jesus comes back with power and authority. And he does not come to die that second time, but he comes to rule in a kingdom that will never end, so that he is forever king of kings and lord of lords. Now, the hymn writer said this, I thought a very good word. Someday the silver cord will break, and I no more as now shall sing. But oh, the joy when I awake within the palace of the king. And I shall see him face to face and tell the story saved by grace. Our text says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. 
And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And friends, that's the one I serve, and I hope he's the one you serve, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's heaven's child. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to you tonight, we thank you for this wonderful text in the Old Testament, how it points to Jesus, who is the greatest king of all kings, and how we do look forward to that second advent. First one has come and passed, and in that you died as a sacrifice for our sins, and I pray, Lord, that everyone here may have faith in that sacrifice. And now, Lord, we look for that second coming. We, come, we look for the time when Jesus will establish a kingdom upon this earth that will last forever. And, Lord, we do want to serve you as our king of all kings. Blessing this invitation tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's